You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. How much is a nickel worth? Five cents as a rule. But what is nickel the metal worth? Now that can vary. In the late 1960s, nickel was in high demand due to the Vietnam War, but there was a shortage of supply due to strikes at the major Canadian supplier. An Australian company, Poseidon, announced that they had found a large deposit of nickel, and the price of nickel went from about $2,500 a ton to nearly $10,000 in less than a year. And Poseidon's stock soared from $0.50 a share to peak at around $280 per share. But shortly after Poseidon got that nickel out of the ground, they were in receivership and the company was removed from the stock exchange. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We're talking today about financial bubbles. Can't imagine why I chose this topic, what with all the talk about crypto this and blockchain that, NFTs, FUDs, and coins with dog memes on them that don't actually exist. You've heard the term bubble in a financial context before, and you've probably lived through a few already. Like the U.S. housing bubble that brought about the 2008 recession, or the dot-com bubble of the late 1990s. But what exactly is a financial bubble? While bubbles can be based on commodities, credit, or stock, they follow an observable and predictable pattern. Phase 1. Eureka Displacement This occurs when investor attention gets captivated by some emerging thing or recent event. Phase 2. The Big Boom Prices rise and start rising faster and faster. This draws attention, which draws more investors, which draws more attention. Continue ad nauseum. Phase 3. Euphoria. Everything's coming up Millhouse. You finally made it and it's smooth sailing from here. Phase 4, which could be called Act 3, Scene 1, Profit-Taking. Investors who can smell disaster on the wind start selling and getting out while they can still profit. This brings us to the part of the bubble that is best remembered each time. And finally, Phase 5, Panic. It doesn't take much to pop a bubble, but once it's done... It's done. You cannot reinflate it. Q selling on mass and plummeting prices. Now, one does not simply write a podcast episode about financial bubbles without talking about one of the best-known historical examples, so let's just dive right into it. The 17th century Dutch tulip mania. The primary pastel or pinstripey flower as closely associated with the Netherlands as windmills and clogs actually comes to us from the Ottoman Empire. Tulips back then were red as a rule, but the occasional white or yellow popped up, and, being rare, were prized. Its botanical history is a bit vague, difficult for botanists to be sure of what they were looking at, thanks to the very quality that would elevate tulips to rock star status, their ability to mutate and change color rapidly. 
As one botanist wrote in 1597, Nature seems to play more with this flower than with any other I know. You can grow a tulip from a bulb, as most of us do, or from a seed, but that requires waiting 7 to 12 years for it to reach the flowering bulb stage. Imagine a botanist's surprise if they had spent a decade carefully tending a patch of red tulips, only to have them come up red and yellow striped. More about the stripey boys in a minute. Now, not everyone has that kind of patience. Being a bulb plant means that tulips were relatively easy to sell and transport, as opposed to a whole potted plant, which would acquire a lot of tending along the journey. All you had to do was wait for the plant to be dormant in the late summer or early fall and dig up the bulbs. As tulips migrated from the Middle East to new lands in Europe, thanks largely to a Habsburg ambassador to the Ottoman Empire in the 16th century, people were as likely to try eating them as we would shallots, as they were planting them, but that never really caught on. They also showed up as ingredients in medicine treating intestinal complaints, but that didn't really stick either. But this was a time when botany was the new hotness for the brainy set, like archaeology and Egyptology would be for the Victorians, though with rather less grave robbing. Wealthy nobles and royals planted vast gardens of beautiful tulips. This was also the era of Calvinism, a stern subset of Christianity, that approved of tulips because, though they were gaudily colored, they had little to no smell, which meant they could be considered to be modest or virtuous. Carolus Clusius, director of the Royal Medicinal Garden in Vienna, took tulip bulbs with him when he relocated to the University of Leiden in the Dutch Republic. Clusius's garden produced wondrous mutations, including broken tulips, where the base color of the flower is painted with stripes of white or yellow. No one knew what caused broken tulips to be able to cultivate their own, and Clusius was understandably possessive and protective of his flowers. Other tulip enthusiasts tried to manipulate the color of their flowers by fertilizing them with things like pigeon guano or wall plaster, or adding pigment directly to the soil, thinking the plant would draw the color up into their stems and then the petals, which I can definitely see the logic behind, even if it does not work that way. Meeting with no success on the DIY front, these tulip heads started asking Clusius to sell them bulbs, offering him exorbitant amounts of money. Clusius refused to sell, so some of these gardeners banded together and pillaged his garden under cover of darkness. For the curious, which I assume is anyone who listens to this show, the broken colors are actually the result of a virus, which is spread to the tulip by the peach potato aphid, which afflicts peach trees, also popular in gardens in the area. As thieves of hot commodities will do, the hobby botanists sold their ill-gotten booty, and tulips were popping up, no pun intended, across the country and beyond, and the obsession with broken and rare-colored tulips spread and grew along with them. The creme de la creme, the must-have tulip, was the Semper Augustus, an almost candy cane-like red and white striped flower, which this reporter finds to be nice. Not thrilling, but nice. These days, the end-all and be-all color for enthusiasts is black. A true black. A mall goth lipstick black. 
not the deep purple that's referred to as black in the catalogs. Most collectors would never lay their eyes on a Semper Augustus in person, but one who did offered its owner 13,000 florins, the cost of a respectable house, for one single bulb. This wasn't the start of people spending flatly ridiculous sums of money on a small plant that serves no purpose other than looking pretty. It was merely one example of many. Tulip mania was on. Like online day trading in the early aughts, people from all social strata wanted to get rich quick. People sold their own homes and businesses to buy them. A groom was said to have accepted a single tulip as a dowry from his bride's family. A burglar supposedly sold all of his tools to buy tulips, which is less going straight than hoping to be the Gordon Gecko of gardeners. By 1636, tulips were the fourth largest Dutch export, after gin, herring, and cheese, or as we call it around my house, date night. Plants only propagate so fast, though, so it didn't take long before the enormous demand far outstripped the supply. Transactions went from being an exchange of money for bulbs to promissory notes for delivery of bulbs later in the future. This meant selling could happen whenever in the year and was no longer dependent on the tulip's growing cycle and dormant period. As prices rose, people began buying on credit, taking on mountains of debt that they were certain they'd be able to pay back with a profit. The same exists somewhere but not here today where we're doing business bulb, could be bought and sold a dozen times in a busy trading day. This system was known as Vinhandel, because you didn't have a physical tulip in your hand at the end, just a hand full of wind. And what a system it was. Growers and buyers would meet in the back rooms of taverns, along with an impartial intermediary. Each party would write down the figure they wanted for their end of the deal, and the intermediary would look at these and write down a figure somewhere in the middle that they deemed to be fair. If the parties agreed to the intermediary's price point, everyone went home happy. If either party disagreed, the grower owned a fine to the intermediary, incentivizing them to close the deal. When the payment was made, the intermediary took a fee, known as wine money, because it was meant to be paid to the publican. That was 1636. By February of 1637, things had taken a turn. A grower in Harlem, the original city of Harlem, went to the tavern as usual to sell his bulbs, but there were no takers. He lowered his price. Still nothing. Prices dropped, and panicked speculators sold their inventory or futures as fast as they could, flooding the market with more supply and driving prices down further and faster. It was as if everyone had woken up one day and realized, they're just flowers. I mean, sure, they're pretty, and some are rare, but they're flowers. A pretty flower is just not worth risking your home or ending up in crushing debt if you're not savvy enough in your selling. That's one theory as to why the bubble burst. Some historians point to a grower's guild lobbying parliament to regulate sales contracts to make contracts more favorable to the buyer, which the buyers assumed would make them more money, spurring more buying, which ground to a halt when they realized this was not in fact the case. 
There was also pushback against the whole thing from religious groups, who pointed to the mania as an example of the sin of greed, decrying that one fool hatched another, the idle rich lost their wealth, and the wise lost their senses. We think of tulip mania as crippling the Dutch economy, but just as the belief of people throwing themselves from office windows when the stock market crashed in 1929 is wildly exaggerated, there were fewer people in the tulip game than we think. According to Anne Goldar of King's College, and you can in your head add a zero to each of these figures for a rough approximation to modern U.S. dollars, I only found 37 people who paid more than 300 guilders for a bulb. Some of the legends of bulbs that people talk about were 1,200 guilders. The highest price I ever saw was 5,500. There are people who lost money, but we're talking about a small group of people, and most of them who had enough money that it really didn't make that much difference. They were not happy about it, but they could afford it. While tulips had been popular, it's not like the economy hinged on them. The bubble burst, some people lost their shirts, but the Netherlands continued on pretty much unchanged. One thing that's changing around here is the designs in the Your Brain on Facts merch store. I just made one that looks like the Brain logo, but in red neon, and I'm pretty proud of the way it turned out. The shortest route to our Tee Public store is yourbrainonfacts.com slash merch. It'll take you right over there. And while you're on the website, if you go to yourbrainonfacts.com slash social, you'll see links to our Facebook group and our subreddit where you can hang out with like-minded brainiacs, all of whom are quality, but some of whom also support the show at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. We have 74 patrons right now. Wouldn't it be cool if you signed up and became patron number 75? And of course, supporters get ad-free versions of the episode posted early. I can't promise it's very early, but it is early. And if you're already a member of our Patreon, be sure you answer the poll in the pinned post about whether or not you feel like you're getting a sufficient value for your support. One person did say on the poll they think it would be really cool to get an extra gift on your birthday, and I 100% agree with you. However, that is not information that Patreon provides. And since it was an anonymous poll, I just wanted to let the person know here since I had no way of telling them directly. Name something that started as a children's toy and ended in pain for adults. Nope, not Monopoly. That ruins entire families. This item should only have been the obsession for eight-year-old curls, but was instead called an investment vehicle, with rare examples selling for 3,000 times their original price. It led grown adults to spend huge amounts of money, fight tooth and claw, include it in their divorce, and waste armloads of food. Can you tell old Moxie's got an opinion about this topic? This one I lived through, but I'll narrow the time frame down a little further because I lived through is now too broad a span of time for my liking. This bubble took place in the era of grunge, Braveheart, O.J. Simpson, Pogs, that optimistic time when we actually knew what to call a decade, the 90s. That's right, we're talking Beanie Babies. And yes, I know you've been shouting it at no one in particular since I started, but I wrote the script, so I'll jolly well read it. Ty Warner, not Time Warner, Ty Warner, whose name would adorn the ear tags of millions of plush toys, was a top salesman at the Dakin Toy Company in the early 1970s. 
His sales style was, we'll call it memorable. He'd arrive at client meetings in a white Rolls Royce, wearing a full-length fur coat and carrying a cane. Is that what I'm doing wrong in marketing my voiceover business, not dressing like Huggy Bear? In 1986, Warner got the idea to set aside the classic approach of stuffing toys with fluffy stuff like cotton wool in favor of plastic pellets. He started working on his new toy line on the side, which Dankin caught wind of and sacked him for. But all that did was give him the time he needed to launch Tie Incorporated. Initially, buyers were not keen on the floppy furry figures, but Warner, undeterred, made a series of calculated decisions that drove the market to madness. Step 1. Price Beanie Babies at $5 each. Easily affordable for just about anyone. Step 2. Make them exclusive to small shops and keep supplies in those shops limited. Our lizard brain will stop at nothing to get something if it means we're the only one who can have it. Step 3. Play your cards close to your vest. The toy design process and even Tie Incorporated's corporate culture, the buzziest of buzzwords from the impending dot-com bubble, were kept mum. They wouldn't even let on to which stores would carry which toys. So if you wanted that Patty the Platypus, you would have to drive all over Hell and Creation looking for it, making you doubly determined. We're easily led animals, and it took no time at all for people to become obsessed. But Warner's masterstroke in buyer manipulation came in 1995, when he decided to retire certain characters, heightening the illusion of scarcity, even while factories all across Asia turned out Beanie Babies by the millions. Suddenly, a Splash the Whale, the first Beanie Baby to be retired, was selling in stores for $20 instead of 5 and once those were exhausted, they began selling on the burgeoning internet for thousands. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Warner did his work a little too well. He'd created a monster, and one imagines swum around Scrooge McDuck style in a vault of plush toys and money, while the rest of us read news stories of things like adult collectors literally trampling children to get their hands on retired Jerry Garcia bear. People creating actual smuggling rings. A 77-year-old man stealing over a thousand Beanie Babies. And, almost unthinkably, a 63-year-old security guard 
being shot and killed during a robbery in which the bandit didn't want the cash in the register, only their Beanie Babies. At the height of the Beanie Baby boom, gurus emerged offering financial insights and words of wisdom to collectors. Don West, a former pro-wrestling hype man, appeared on Beanie Baby infomercials, admonishing viewers that they shouldn't let the opportunity of a lifetime slip through their fingers. Venerable publications like Mary Beth's Beanie World sold 650,000 copies a month and encouraged readers to use their toys as an investment strategy, with topics like how to protect an investment that increased by 8,400%, simply putting away five or ten of each and every new Beanie Baby in super mint condition isn't a bad idea, suggested the Beanie Baby Handbook in 1998. Unfortunately, it was, and some people lost a lot of money. Then came the moment that disgusted me particularly, the 1997 McDonald's Happy Meal promotion, in which 100 million scaled-down teeny beanies were sold in 10 days. Across the country, grown men wrestled over toys with names like Pinky the Flamingo. Among the fistfights and general chaos that fast food workers are not paid enough to deal with, People would also buy as many Happy Meals as the location would allow, pull the toys out, and immediately throw all the food away. Mr. Warner, now you've gone too far. Wasting food is a real no-no with me. In 1998, the company was raking in more than a billion dollars a year in profit. At the holiday party that same year, Warner, now a billionaire, stood before a room of 250 of his employees and shouted, I've never seen so many millionaires in my life. If you picked up on the rhythm of the tulip mania, you know that the bubble burst is coming, and I won't make you wait. Little more than a year later, Thai Incorporated announced the retirement of several Beanie Babies. And nothing happened. No panic buying, no market swell, no grossly inflated secondary market, no nothing. The company wasn't the only one to notice. Collectors noticed, too, many wisely recognizing it as the beginning of the end, possibly the first wise moment in this hobby-come-obsession. Collectors panicked and tried to sell off their Beanie Babies before their value vanished, flooding eBay and sales forums, knocking the floor right out from under their own feet. There was no scarcity of Beanie Babies now. There were tons of the things, and they had no value apart from the fleece they were made from and the transient joy they give a small child. In a desperate bid to pull something, anything, from the burning wreckage of the once juggernaut company, Thai Incorporated announced that it would end production of all Beanie Babies at the end of 1999. The world responded with yawns. Angry yawns. Bulk purchasing sites like buyingbeanies.com began to spring up, offering to buy your collection for 25 cents or so per toy, reselling them for carnival prizes and claw machines. People who spent thousands of dollars, sometimes their actual life savings, found themselves broke with armloads of collectibles that no one wanted to collect. 
Okay, you're thinking, but that was more than 20 years ago, nearly a generation ago. Or several generations with the way the media is hell-bent on demarking and labeling generations lately. It's been 20 years. Surely they've appreciated and value something. Yeah, if I were you, I wouldn't go through all the fuss and bother of pulling that tote of Beanie Babies down from the attic just yet. Their average value has declined more than 98% since the late 90s. They're literally worth less than dollar store knockoffs. Yep, even the rare Princess Diana bear isn't that valuable. Because they're not that rare, and while lots of people hope to sell them, really no one's looking to buy one. And Ty Warner, the mad genius who started it all? If you're holding out for comeuppance, I've got bad news. Aside from some minor trouble getting caught secretly squirreling away $100 million in an offshore bank account, Warner's kept a low profile. Though quiet doesn't exactly mean humble. He is among the thousand richest people in the world, has a fleet of luxury cars, a $150 million estate, $41 million worth of rare art, and he owns the frigging Four Seasons Hotel in New York, where you can rent the Ty Warner penthouse for the scandalously low price of $50,000 per night, or the original price of about 10,000 Beanie Babies. You ever have someone tell you something far-fetched or incredulous, immediately followed by, and if you believe that, I have some real estate in Florida to sell you? I assure you, it is a thing that people have said. And now I know why. You could say that real estate in Florida has been important to the United States since before they were states or they were united. The first settlement in North America was in Florida when the Spanish established St. Augustine, 42 years before the English founded Jamestown in Virginia. The first European settlement, excuse me, I disappoint myself with that Eurocentricity. Let me just open a tab here and bring up one of a number of websites that you can use to search for your address to learn whose ancestral land you're living on. Let's see, native-land.ca. Not a sponsor. Okay, I knew about the Chickahominy, the Powhatan, and the Pamunkey, but I didn't know about the Paspaheg, Kiskiak, or Weyanok. See, we're learning together. It's almost hard to imagine as someone who has grown up with established cities like Miami and Tampa, but Florida wasn't settled at nearly the same rate as the rest of the country. It didn't really get going until the late 1800s, and even then was concentrated on the coasts and at river deltas. The land seemed designed to keep people out. Roads are hard to build in marshy swampland, especially when it's full of alligators and malarial mosquitoes. And also, based on my two trips to Orlando, covered in lizards. Whole place, every outside wall, lizards, all the way down. Now, all that changed in the 1850s. The urbanization stuff, not the lizard stuff. Florida's leaders set out to spur the construction of railroads. There was land in it for you if you were willing to lay down track. Before long, the isolated towns of Florida were connected to the larger cities in the southern U.S. The trains carried exotic goods like citrus fruit to New York and points beyond, and on the return trip brought tourists and potential residents, possibly lured in by lower taxes. The rapid industrialization of the early 20th century put even more money in those people's pockets. 
It was the ideal time to be a real estate investor or developer. It was a sort of cross between the Wild West and an all-you-can-eat buffet. Thousands of developers, like Carl Fisher, who transformed the island of Miami Beach from a place where locals would occasionally go to picnic to, well, Miami Beach, drove a full-fledged land boom. From 1921 to 1925, the populations of Florida's biggest cities increased by around 150 percent in just four years. That is a lot of people to sell land to. The whole of the state seemed to have been divvied up into parcels as swamps were backfilled, shorelines reinforced, roads laid, and even islands drawn up out of the sea. Florida subdivided enough land in the 1920s to rehouse the entire population of the country at the time. Investors were buying land sight unseen and selling them on before the first deed change was ever recorded. In 1924, a man named D.P. Davis sold 300 building lots in Tampa Bay in three hours, even though nearly all of them are underwater. And he probably still wasn't even salesman of the year. There were so many real estate ads in the Miami Daily News that on July 26, 1925, the Daily Paper came to 504 pages and weighed a stunning 7.5 pounds or 3.4 kilograms on newspaper. So why the 1920s? Why didn't it boom the decade before or two decades after? Americans had the time and money to travel to Florida to invest in real estate. For the educated and skilled working people of America, the 1920s meant paid vacations, pensions, and benefits unheard of in their parents' day. The United States also had the automobile, that indispensable family transportation that would actually get you to Florida. This welfare capitalism of time and money contributed to the arrival in Florida a whole new kind of tourist, middle-class families. Success is never guaranteed in business or in life, but if you got in on the boom early, the odds were in your favor. Regular folks got in on the action, such as an elderly man whose sons had him committed to a sanitarium after he spent his life savings of $1,700 on a piece of Pinellas property. When the value of the land reached $300,000 in 1925, the man's lawyer got him released so he could sue his children. This economic prosperity taking place in the Roaring Twenties, you're probably thinking ahead to the stock market crash that stalked our land like a great stalking thing. The Florida real estate bubble didn't even last that long. With so many transactions happening so quickly, authorities struggled to police the real estate market. False advertising was utterly pervasive. Taking a 200-point smudge tool to the line between legit transaction and scam. Prospective buyers were lured in with elegant drawings and even movie scenery facades of houses to trick them into buying often worthless land. Stories like these coming to light really harshed the bubble's buzz, but it was a Category 4 hurricane in 1926 that shut down the party. In addition to hundreds dead and thousands injured, huge swaths of developed land and buildings were just foobar. People in other states who might have been considering moving to Florida 
saw that in the paper and stayed away in droves. That kind of weather added an unacceptable level of risk, even for people who had already put up with yellow fever vectors, confidence men, and let's be honest, the humidity. The flow of cash into the state went from suck to blow. Okay, that Spaceballs line did not work as well there as I had hoped, but like all my other mistakes, I'm committing to it. Floridians then got a sneak preview of the bank collapses the rest of the nation would see in a few years, as the vaults were emptied and the banks shuttered. Remember that newspaper with 504 pages of real estate ads? Yeah, now it was just 41 pages. All tax delinquency notices. In 1845, in 1845, the UK was in the grip of a frenzy that saw investors tripping over each other to pile into railway shares. Bewitched by promises of a revolutionary mode of transport, a huge untapped market, and spectacular profit growth. Even the likes of Charles Darwin and the Bronte sisters were swept up in the hype. Private firms hatched grandiose investment plans submitted hundreds of bills to Parliament for new railway lines, and saw share prices double in short order. The government was obliging. In 1845, it authorized around 3,000 miles of track be built, roughly as much as the previous 15 years combined. And at its peak, railway investment, which lagged a few years behind planning applications, surged to 7% of the GDP representing half of all total investment in the economy at the time. Move this to the start of this section. There was a mania. This next mania is one very few people have heard about, and I even had a difficult time researching it because when I tried to find a video to watch about it on YouTube and searched for what it was called, there's a podcast by that name, so that flooded the search results. This was Britain's Railway Mania. The seeds of the boom were actually sown a decade earlier, with the opening of the world's first commercial passenger railway line between the recently industrialized and thriving cities of Liverpool and Manchester. The UK was fast becoming a global manufacturing dynamo, and railways promised to catalyze the revolution, making it possible to move raw materials and finished goods cheaply, quickly, and in great volumes. And that's what trains were for, in most people's minds. Cargo, not passengers. Investors assumed no one in their right mind would want to be jangled about on a noisy train when they could just take their horse and coach. But the public at large was up for it. The Liverpool-Manchester line was a roaring, wildly profitable success. Shovelfuls of coal from the engine turned into buckets of cash for investors, and they were on board, no pun intended, with the idea, if not the actual train. But the mania was still a few years away, when the Bank of England inadvertently created fertile conditions for it by allowing stock to be purchased with just a 10% deposit, massively expanding the potential investor base. If that sounds familiar, it's the same buying-on-margin system that precipitated the 1929 U.S. stock market crash. 
With railway stocks now tantalizingly within reach of Britain's emerging middle class, companies pulled out all the stops to market themselves to investors. Railway firms aggressively pushed their own shares. In one of those newfangled newspapers everyone's always going on about. In late 1845, railway ads covered over half of the space in many papers, chock full of inflated claims, optimistic revenue projections, and questionable accounting practices. But they got the job done. There was a Wild West feel here, too. The paint was still wet on the industry of professional accounting. There were no set standards from within or without, and no governing body. Auditing? Not a thing, per se. As such, information regarding company accounts and future business prospects was surrounded by a London fog of uncertainty. We do know, with certainty though, that some transactions were just outright scams. Take for instance George Hudson, the so-called Railway King and one of the wealthiest industrialists of the day, who ran a Ponzi-like scheme paying dividends out of company capital. Private companies, however, were not the only ones responsible for the railway bubble. The finger of blame also needs to be pointed at the British government. The regulatory approach was lackadaisical when it happened, with Parliament limiting itself to approving the construction of new lines and making no initial attempt to develop a coherent national rail strategy, or to put the brakes on the huge proliferation of railway firms. Fragmented decision-making didn't help things either. At the height of the boom in 1945, there were 44 separate parliamentary committees analyzing potential network expansions, each focusing on a specific region of the country. Every single committee, without exception, approved at least one project. Think about the last group project you had to work on. Now imagine your output is expected to jive with the output of 43 other groups. It's a committee of committees, and I'm getting an ulcer just thinking about it. But even the most streamlined, uniform thinking wouldn't have stopped the railway bubble, for the simple and time-tested reason that many members of Parliament had a dog in the fight, who would control one-third of the rail lines. A government official with a financial interest. One is shocked. The mania reached its zenith in 1846, when 263 Acts of Parliament setting up new railway companies were passed, with the proposed routes totaling 9,500 miles or 15,300 kilometers. About a third of the railways authorized were never built. The companies either collapsed due to poor financial planning, were bought out by a larger competitor before they could build their line, or turned out to be a fraudulent enterprise to channel investor money into other businesses. As dozens of companies formed and began to operate, the simple unviability of many of them became clear. Investors began to realize that railways weren't all that lucrative and easy to build as they had been led to believe. Coupled with this, in late 1845, the Bank of England increased interest rates. As banks began to reinvest in bonds, the money began to flow out of the railways. By 1850, railway shares were worth less than half of their original value, and dividend rates had fallen from upwards of 7% to around 2%. When the mania came to an end, it was revealed that Hudson had engaged in improper business practices, including bribery, embezzlement, and insider trading. 
I am Jack's complete lack of surprise. In essence, Hudson operated his railways through a Ponzi scheme in which outsized dividends were distributed to old investors from the capital from incoming investors. Hudson resigned from his directorship, lost his seat in Parliament, and spent the remainder of his days in obscurity, which I feel pretty okay about. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. But back to the Australian nickel. As Poseidon stock became too expensive for some investors, they began to snatch up shares in other mining companies, some of which listed themselves purely to cash in on the investment frenzy, with no intention of ever mining nickel. While that was happening, Poseidon found that the ore they discovered wasn't very good and would cost more to mine than normal. Once it became apparent in 1970 that a lot of the stock was worthless, the bubble burst. Remember, you can always find the links to the sources and the full script at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.